1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Well, hello. Happy September. Happy September. It's lovely
4: to see you. Well, it's nice to see you in the flesh. Well, in the Zoom. Zoom
3: flesh. Zoom flesh. The, the, the beard is back. Oh, yes. I thought, it'll make Ed happy. It'll make my wife happy. The beard is back. So how was your holiday? It was good. We didn't do very much. And I was, um, oh, you are like this. So because we haven't really done much for, for one reason or another, I've been trying to give my son, who's five, as many special summer experiences as possible. And he has always been mithering to go on an open-top bus. Wow. Do you enjoy an open top bus tour? No. when you win an an election, do you then do an open top bus victory lap around Doncaster North? I thought you were going to make a sort of rude remark about winning an election.
4: <laughs> I was. I, I don't have that experience. I thought it was I thought it was like, you know, he's back at he's he, he's back at his right his acerbic best, I thought. No. Um uh, But you didn't have an open top bus on standby in 2015. I, I History doesn't quite. Rec- I don't think anyone told me if we did. <laughs> um, uh, no, I don't mind an open top bus. I don't mind actually a closed top bus. You're just a bus fan generally. Well, well no, no, I liked like sitting on the top of a double decker. We discussed this before, haven't we?
3: Yes, I find it weird when people who are able to reach the top deck of the bus choose not to sit on the top deck of the bus. Yeah, no, I know you're definitely a top deck person. Are you? I love it. I think you've died a bit on the inside if you don't choose the top deck of the bus. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so so we um, take him on this open top bus tour. We start in central London in Piccadilly Circus. We see a few sights. Then we get off around Tower Bridge, have a little lunch. It's hop on, hop off. So we hop back on again. We we've, we've been on one minute and then All hell breaks loose. There are police everywhere. There are police vans. There are police running down the street. The traffic is really snarled up. Something is going on. We've got no idea what. We get off and start crossing Tower Bridge. And it was the day that Extinction Rebellion had done the blockade in the middle of Tower Bridge. So everyone's heading towards it. Gene asks what's going on. I explain. At that moment, he goes... Absolutely nuts. He runs into the heart of it and starts shouting, save the planet, save the planet. I mean, this is like sort of the opposite of
4: like being dragged on a demonstration by your parents. This is like being dragged on a demonstration by your children. I know. Um,
3: He got given an Extinction Rebellion sticker, which he then, then put on me. And then I started worrying that because I occasionally do work for the BBC, that that would be some kind of breach of impartiality. So you took it off. I did take it off, but then I was worried that the uh, the Extinction Rebellion people would would think that I wasn't sympathetic to, uh, to to the causes. I was some kind of climate change denier. It's, it's very complex.
4: Well, I've swum in the sea uh, in on holiday in Cornwall. Wow! Um, How was that? I like the sea. I'm, I'm in favour of the sea, actually.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, w- I would
4: miss it if it wasn't there. Have you ever swum? You must swim in the sea. In, have you swum in the the British sea, sea in Britain or not? Uh,
3: I, I must have done when I was a kid. I've paddled, I paddled in Prestatin somewhat recently. I used to swim in the Baltic Sea. How, how hot warm is that? Well, I tended to do it in the summertime, which was maybe about 18, 19, 20, something like that.
4: I think it probably wasn't that much less, a little bit less. Ollie in my office, who's from Cornwall, says that actually it gets even warmer,
3: if anything, a bit warmer in September and October. Well, it's had the whole summer to heat up, that's why, isn't it? Oh, yeah. you see, that's what he said. Interesting.
4: Yeah. No, it was good. I, I I sort of liked it. I don't, not sure how I compare it to the to swimming in the pond. Um, actually, very clear sea, clearer than the ponds, I must say. Aren't you derailed by the waves? No, I, I'm sort of a great fancy. Justine loves the sea. Is that right? Yeah, she loves the sea.
3: No fear of jellyfish?
4: Yes, she she didn't.
3: She was worried about the jellyfish. Actually, you're completely right about that. In fact, she saw a jellyfish and she got out. Did you make sure you had a full bladder just in case? What, what's that? Well, if someone gets stung by a jellyfish, aren't you supposed to, to urinate on the sting? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, you must do that next time. So next time you go in the sea with your wife, tell her that your bladder's full and it should, uh, should quell her nerves. Are you just making that up? No, no, no. Have you had that experience? I've never had that experience, but I think it's a thing. It's just like April Fool, but sort of... Very early or very late. Why don't you text your wife now and say, would you like me to urinate on you if you stood by a gentleman? Right, should we miss?
4: (laughs) Apparently, Emma says that our whole episode of Friends was based on this. Did you learn it from Friends? I've never seen a full episode of Friends. So certainly not that one. Well, there you go. No, it was, I I liked, the series something special about the sea, I must say. Mm. Um Yeah. Should we say what we're talking about this week? We probably should. This week, we're talking, Jeff, about rewilding, and that's not about your beard. It's about the idea of actively restoring ecosystems to get to a position where nature can take care of itself. We've touched on rewilding a couple of times on the podcast before, but have been keen to do a dedicated episode on it, given the many potential benefits for the climate, for nature, and more. First, we're talking to Alastair Driver from campaign group Rewilding Britain about what rewilding is, what it involves, and how policies can support it. Then we're talking to Steve Micklewright from Trees for Life, a really exciting project that's been working to rewild parts of the Scottish Highlands for more than a decade. And finally, we're talking to Jan Stannard from a new charity called Heal Rewilding, which is raising money to buy land across England in order to rewild. What's your reason to
3: be cheerful, Geoffrey? Well, on a nature theme, I dug up some potatoes this week. Oh. I'm 48 years old. I have never done this in my life before. I uh, I found it. Very invigorating. Um, I went to visit my dad, who, who had been growing some. He asked if I could help him dig them up. So there I was, with a little fork, tilling the earth. Did it give you a real sense of satisfaction? It really did, actually, yeah. It's a completely new experience for me, and I thought maybe I could become self-sufficient like the good life. I do see you as a sort of Richard braz figure. Oh, well, I, I do look great in uh, casual knitwear. Do you think Sarah's an appropriate Felicity Kendall? No, I think she's definitely got a touch more of the Margot to her, hasn't mm. she? I don't think I'll speculate on that. Have you, have you ever tilled the earth? It's not, my, it's not my natural forte, I don't think. Do you, do you know what I mean? Well, I, I surpri- I'm just saying I surprised myself.
4: You couldn't really imagine me tilling
3: the earth, could you? I, th- I think I could. Shirtless, really? mopping your brow. <laughs> anyway that, that's me i thought i'd try and uh, give it a a, a slight rewilding thing i know people will think that we
4: coordinate brilliantly on this podcast but we honestly we don't but i mean it is completely on point um now look i know you basically think that i'm full of crap ideas just to be sort of clear about this but this is well, why i want to prove that i'm not and i don't the trouble is i don't know whether i've ever talked to you about this idea so you know vending machines i do yeah so i've long felt that there is a sort of gap in the market because vending machines sell chocolate and crisps and fizzy drinks but they don't ever sell fruit have i talked about this before it may have come up yeah i basically i just want to sort of basically say that you know okay make your own sandwich may be dead long live the fruit vending machine uh anyway Lindsay, who you remember how could you forget she worked for me as my chief of staff and then sadly Escaped. left Although she hasn't really properly escaped because actually she was, she was sort of in my house for five hours yesterday. But anyway, leave that to one side. But she sent me this email only in France. I think it's actually from a tweet, not her tweet. Only in France, part 439. Here is a 24-hour refrigerated vending machine with garlic, honey, onions, etc. in Brittany, just in case you feel like cooking at 2.45 a.m. And then basically you can see the picture of it. Wow. I once met a man on a train who was in the, the vending machine business was he french no he was he wasn't he was British, and I tried to sell my bananas idea haha so to speak to him and he was skeptical i think it's fair to say was it was it like one of those episodes of dragon's den where it doesn't go well i mean it sort of reminded me of you know, somebody coming to talk to me about an idea, which I didn't think was a very good idea, which can happen. <laughs> and then he was sort of polite, but firm, I would say. And you don't think that he took this idea and exported it to France? Possibly. He said it was kind of like, don't call me, I won't will call you, you know. Mm. Um, but this is living proof that it can work. I feel like we could go, you and I could go into partnership with this what would we call our vending machines?
3: Well, I, I, I would dig it up and, and you would... Uh, pop it in? Yeah, dig and pop. What, sort of, you know... A bit literal. Emma just came up with a good one in the chat. You go on, She said, what about vegetable? Mm. It's a portmanteau of vending and vegetable. Mm. I think you're doing the same face as that man did to you on the train <laughs> yeah. when you pitched the idea. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd
3: to start this really important
4: conversation about rewilding, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Alistair Driver, who is director of Rewilding Britain, a group promoting rewilding across the country. Alistair, thank you for joining us. And I think you should tell our listeners where you are. (laughs)
5: Okay, well, I've just literally boarded the Queen Elizabeth cruise ship in Southampton Dock, Because for the next week, I'm going to be the onboard nature guide and guest speaker. And I'll be speaking about, amongst other things, rewilding, as well as a bit about my career in the Environment Agency over the last 30, 40 years. and, uh, And also a bit about expeditions that I go on.
4: Well, look, 200 plus episodes in, Alistair. This is definitely a first. We've <laughs> never had anybody speak to us from onboard a ship, have we, Jeff?
3: No, we've never had life on the ocean wave before. No. <laughs> We're speaking to Alistair via Portishead radio, ship to shore. Exactly. Are you receiving me? <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very exciting. Look, let,
4: let's start with the basics and, and forgive us just for starting here. But just explain, because I think it's quite important for the rest of the conversation, obviously, what is rewilding? we at
5: Rewilding Britain summarise it as the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. But immediately one has to stress that this is very much a long journey. You know, it would take a very long time to get to that point where nature is taking care of itself at scale. And, And we may never get to the end of that journey in such a crowded country, but we should focus, therefore, on progressing in that direction, trying to move up the rewilding spectrum so that we are more and more hands-off, letting nature lead more and more over time.
4: That's very very helpful explanation. Tell us what kinds of processes rewilding involves in practice, and also, crucially, I think, how it differs from traditional approaches to nature conservation.
5: I've been a traditional nature conservationist for 40 years, and I still am. You know, I still I created and still manage a small nature reserve in my village and that has huge merit and goodness knows where we would have been if we hadn't restored sites across the country for for nature conservation, set up nature reserves, had good planning policies which helped to minimise the impact on nature and had various stewardship schemes that farmers uh, adopt. But the simple truth is we're still going backwards on biodiversity and therefore it's my firm belief that we need something else as well, not instead of, but additional. And that's something else, in my view, is rewilding because you're doing things at scale, and you're gradually relaxing over time. So it's more affordable. You're needing to intervene and and manage and garden much less if you take the rewilding approach.
4: And Jeff and I were talking about this before we came on air. There's obviously a difference in that you're letting sort of nature take care of itself, if that's the right way of putting it, with rewilding, yeah, um, versus nature conservation. What are the other benefits of rewilding over traditional nature conservation? In other words, is it better for biodiversity? Is that too much of a generalisation? Is it Does it have more impact, for example, on carbon dioxide sequestration or is that too much of a generalisation? Guide us through that.
5: The first thing to remember is that the scale, you know, to, to rewild at scale means you are restoring natural processes at scale. You're restoring healthy functioning ecosystem, ideally with the right Uh, species of carnivores the right species of herbivores the right mix of vegetation and healthy soil and water we can come back to this but obviously we don't have all of the right carnivores and herbivores so there are certain compromises that have to be made along the way but if you are doing that at scale you are going to restore a much more natural healthy functioning ecosystem than if you are just trying to micromanage tiny pockets of nature reserves scattered across the country which are not connected up. And that is very much what we've come to now over the last 50 years or so of nature conservation. We have got some fantastic sites, but they are, in the main, isolated, fragmented pockets.
3: So is there some element of, if you put the work into rewilding now, it kind of looks after itself long-term? It
5: looks after itself much more longer-term. I mean, what one has to remember is that because so much of our land, soil and water has been degraded over the centuries and we've lost so much of our biodiversity, it does mean that there's a lot of intervention required to start with to kickstart the recovery process. So although you might intervene quite a bit to start with, yes, you gradually take your foot off the gas over time because you are essentially you're going to be allowing large herbivores to roam across bigger areas requiring much much less micromanagement and you also have to become and will become more relaxed about what crops up where you know it might disappear from one area but it'll almost certainly crop up in another area where you know, the, the interaction between herbivores and vegetation is creating the right mix of habitats for those species.
3: And which which which, uh, uh, which animals would you be talking about? I was about this to say... Is <laughs> this is what we've been dying I, to I, ask. I, I, I mean yeah, basically of course.
4: you know, we're we're quite superficial on this podcast. <laughs> you see Alistair. Both Jeff and I, you know, small minds thinking alike, we're, we're going straight to the animals. Yes. The situation
5: at the moment is that you know, we're missing most of the big carnivores, wolf, lynx and bear. We're missing several of the important large herbivores like elk and boar and in most places beaver and 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 bison arguably because uh, the the evidence for bison being
4: here
3: is sketchy
4: any bison in your neighborhood jeff or elk i haven't haven't seen any i'd I'd love to uh, (laughs) spot an elk stalking around stoke
3: newington very shy creatures though
5: we're missing a lot of these species and we've lost the ancient aurochs which was the uh, ancestor of, of cattle and and the tarpan, and the ancestor of of wild ponies and so so we've lost so many of these these big animals and of course it's now a challenge for us to either bring some of them back which we are now starting to do with the likes of the beaver and indeed pine marten and white-tailed eagle etc and we are starting to turn the corner on that but we've got a long way to go before society is going to be ready for you know some of the carnivores, for example, and, and indeed it may never be. But I do think we can get lynx back in this country through proper consultation and proper management strategy, proper compensation for those who who might lose some of their livestock in and around woodland edges. Lynx will be very secretive. They are a very secretive species. They're a stealth predator in in, in woodlands and forests mainly. But you know, if somebody is sheep farming around the, the edge of a wood, they might lose a few sheep to lynx, and we need to have plans in place to to deal with that kind of thing
4: forgive my ignorance here but what, what do links is if that's the right plural or links what do links do for you what, what, why might you want links back in i mean what the,
5: the huge benefit that links will bring is they will help to reduce the numbers of wild deer that we've got in this country because our our own hunting of deer has declined dramatically And because we've lost these apex predators, deer numbers are at an all-time high in history in in Britain. Species like roe deer, for example, uh, and and fallow deer in the south of England are, are crazy numbers now.
4: And just explain for our listeners, because lots of them, including me, will think the deer are very sweet. Why is that a problem, Alistair?
5: Well, they're all part of the ecosystem, of course, and they belong here. But they are having now an unnaturally high impact on the browsing of uh, vegetation naturally re- naturally regenerating trees and scrub for example young seedlings na- naturally regenerating will get hammered by deer in many parts of the country you know as part of some rewilding projects in the absence of links landowners will either control deer numbers or they will exclude them by via deer fencing uh, around a large site which can be quite expensive
4: Talk to us about how government policy can support rewilding, because there's obviously a lot of change afoot with the end of the common agricultural policy for the UK and so on. Yes, to, to yes. Talk to us a little bit about this. Well, it's a fascinating
5: time, actually. And, you know, I,
4: like most environmentalists, was
5: not supportive of Brexit, not least because it because Europe had brought us some fantastic uh, environmental policies, which we probably wouldn't have otherwise adopted so, so quickly. So... So I was a bit, you know, I was apprehensive, but actually the silver lining is that it's given us the opportunity to develop our own uh, agri-environment scheme, our own farming stewardship scheme arrangements. Um, And, you know, what the Common Agricultural Policy did was drive farmers to produce more and more food from the same piece of land, which was obviously not sustainable. You know, it's degrading the soil and water over time. It wasn't the farmer's fault. uh, It was the fault of policy. And of course, what we were continuing to do was waste more and more food. So we waste now waste 40 percent of the food we produce to eat, which is ridiculous and shameful. Um, but that's the situation that we've almost been driven to by policy. So now we've got the chance to reward farmers for uh, producing public goods. They're called, you know, cleaner water, uh, reduce flood risk more sequestered carbon better biodiversity better places for people to visit um that's a fantastic opportunity absolutely potentially if we get it right the best most significant change in environmental management that i will have seen in my lifetime so you know there are reasons definitely reasons to be cheerful your 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 pod, you know the title of your podcast is is well matched to this particular area um, and most recently of course the announcement about the, the consultation on release of beavers into the wild so you know these are several quite big wins within the last year or so which uh, we we are very very pleased about
3: and and how does it sit alongside farming um and I, I know you've spoken about farmers a couple of times but there are sort of concerns beyond links Preying on sheep, Uh, farmers have said that it could potentially reduce UK food production. Um, How how does rewilding factor into that? How can the two things work together?
5: First of all, I'll just reiterate that fact that I gave you about 40% of the food we produce not being, ending up not being eaten by people. You know, that is the massive elephant in the room. You know, if we got it right and we were more efficient, we could actually produce less food. But the other really important thing to say is that, first of all, all of these rewilding projects, so far I've been involved in about 30 major projects across England, nearly 100,000 acres worth of land, and those projects still produce 55% of the livestock units. Yes, it's it's not 100%, but they are all in very marginal farming areas. They're all in areas where once you remove the basic payment scheme, which is now happening, it's simply not viable to produce to try to produce large quantities uh, of uh, meat from the, that land. So the logical step is to, is to go for less quantity and better quality in those situations. And so, as I say, 55% of the livestock units still come from that land. But I've crunched the stats on all of these projects. I, I've gathered loads of data from them. And the interesting thing is that actually the cattle numbers have gone up across those projects as a whole as indeed have pig numbers and pony numbers, but the the species that has been decimated literally is the sheep. Sheep numbers are are a tenth of what they were on these rewilding sites. But again, I've run the stats on this, and if you extrapolate that to 5% of Britain, which is rewilding Britain's ambition, if you extrapolate this, this, uh, what is it at the moment, about 0.3% of the country, up to 5%, that would mean a reduction of approximately 1 million sheep. Sheep numbers would go down from 34 million to 33 million. And I'd mentioned that to Phil Stocker, the head of the National Sheep Association, and he said that's nothing, you know, against all of the other things affecting sheep trade, trade deals, uh, meat-eating habits, etc., that That pales into insignificance. So, So there are all of these reasons why, actually, You know, it's not a big deal for farming. You know, it can sit alongside farming. It doesn't need to involve the rewilding of productive land. So all of this can only be done in cooperation with the farming community. But where it's been done, the other set of stats I've got is relates to things like jobs and volunteers. Where it's been done, the numbers of jobs have actually gone up by nearly 50 percent compared with traditional farming beforehand. Because traditional farming is actually quite low in terms of numbers of jobs per unit area.
3: Is there something you say when you're having conversations with people whose livelihood depends on farming? When you explain rewilding to them, is there something typically that that gets them on board or wins them over a little?
5: It does include many of these things that I've mentioned just now, you know, about the fact that it's not pure rewilding. There will still be livestock involved. We haven't got the native herbivores. So you're going to need some large herbivore activity and that's almost certainly going to be probably cattle and rare breed pigs and that means you may as well harvest them so you're still going to be producing some food we're not forcing it on anybody you know i you know i i only go to people who invite me in i'm not sort of picking on people and you know i i'm invited in i'll i'll tell them what's involved i'll show them examples and and connect them with other people and through our rewilding network that's happening more and more and gradually more and more people are, are coming on board with it
3: And the Rewilding Network, uh, your organisation, as you mentioned, there are lots of projects all over the country. Can you maybe just tell us about a couple that you're excited about just to bring it to life for people?
5: I'll tell you about a a few different ones. So probably the highest uh, highest up the spectrum is an MOD site, which nobody is allowed into because it's a rifle range and it's per bright ranges right in the middle of very populated Surrey. And it's a, a huge site, of, uh, you know, over a 1,000 acres. And I, I had the privilege of going in there, escorted in there last year. And it's absolutely amazing. It is a, a wild mix of heath and wetland mire and some woodland and scattered trees. And it, and it is fantastic. Then there was another one I, I visited only this week, actually, a couple of days ago. And that's the Broughton Estate in, in West Yorkshire, which, which I'm advising privately. Um, because they want ongoing advice. And it's truly transformational. They've taken a 1,000 acres of a 3,000-acre sheep and dairy estate. They've taken a 1,000 acres of that out of farming, and we have planted over 200,000 trees last winter alone. And we're due to plant probably another 50,000 or or more this coming winter. It's absolutely transformational. And what's really interesting is it's not just about the trees where you're seeing the changes in within one year in less than a year actually but it's the grassland and wildflower grassland in and amongst the trees and the difference in invertebrates like grasshoppers and beetles etc in those areas compared with the bowling green short sheep pasture that was there only a year ago is just incredible
3: just finally, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is our utopia. I'm, I'm a kind of benign dictator. I'm very pro-rewilding. I think a bear on every street and uh, a lynx in every back garden is, is, is very much the ticket I will sweep to power on. Um, if, if we were to make you uh, head of rewilding... Um, what would be the first thing you do on day one? You've already talked about what the, uh, uh, the government has done so far with this environmental land management scheme, but how, how do you go further, faster?
5: I'm going to ask for two things that are sort of connected, if I may. I mean, the first thing to say is this environmental land management scheme is not a done deal yet. You know, the devil will be in the detail. So what I would do is I would make sure it's really firmly embedded as a major option for that scheme, with significant a significant chunk of the funding against it.
4: This is the replacement to remind listeners for the for the Common Agricultural yes, Policy. Yeah,
5: that's right, and it's due to kick in in earnest in twenty twenty four. And I, I, although we have you know persuaded government to, to put rewilding in there, and it's mentioned in a, an advisory booklet for farmers that was produced last December, it gets a mention as an option. I want to see a significant chunk of funding against that because people will. You know, there are lots of people wanting to do it for the right reasons. They will still need to make sure it works economically and financially for them. So that's one ask. And then connected to that is, you know, we it is, really is time we stop being so paranoid and scared of species reintroductions. We've got a fantastic track record over the last 20 years or so with very successful introductions of species like those I mentioned, you know, pine martin and beavers. And white-tailed eagles and various species of rare butterfly and plants, etc. We know what we're doing. You know, for me, it's a mindset change. We need to rewild our thinking, as well as the land and nature itself.
3: You're
4: ready to rewild your thinking, Ed? Definitely. Well, look, Alistair, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. We're delighted that you joined us from uh, the high seas, uh, Alistair Driver. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you. Well, to Scotland
3: now, where we have the chief executive of Trees for Life, which is a charity working to rewild the Scottish Highlands. It's Steve Micklewright. Hello. Hi, Jeff. I was mind blown to, to read just how much of Scotland was covered by the Caledonian forest once upon a time. Can you just
0: give us, give us an overview of that? Yeah, I suppose um, if you imagine at the end of the last ice age, 8000 plus years ago, uh, Scotland, most of the UK was pretty barren, not many trees. And um, over time, of course, the trees came back. And at its greatest extent, the vast majority of Scotland, the vast majority of the Scottish Highland are actually covered in trees. And then over time, the climate changed. It got wetter. So actually the trees disappeared in some areas and peatlands took over. But of course, it was humans that mainly resulted in the loss of the the Caledonian forest, as we called it, through chopping them down for agriculture, for shipbuilding, for homes. So now 2% of what was originally there is now left.
3: Just 2%, that's
0: that's quite something.
3: Well, um, we should come on to Trees for Life then. Uh, do Do you want to tell us about Trees for Life and what it is that you do?
0: Yeah, Trees for Life founded in about 1993, almost 30 years ago, by a a guy called Alan Watson Featherstone, who had this vision of restoring the Caledonian forest. He'd gone out into the forest a lot of the time, and it really kind of fed his soul, fed his spirit. And he wanted to give something back to that. And over the last 30 years, we've particularly worked on trying to restore that forest, bring back the pine woods to, to Uh, glens in the north, north of Scotland but also increasingly thinking about the trees that grow above the pines on the high mountains that should have little scrubby trees that cover the ground that help golden eagles, help black grouse, help lovely birds called blue throats that we should have in Scotland but don't breed yet to survive here so we're kind of going a bit higher as time goes on. And, and what's your vision for it and, and what's the timeline for that?
3: Because just talking to Alistair just now, I was surprised at how quickly uh, in, in the rewilding world you start to see a difference. So you know, wh- what is the, the vision for Trees for Life and is it something we can see the, uh, the benefits of in our lifetime?
0: Yeah, I mean the vision is 250 years because we think it takes a pine tree 250 years from kind of a seedling to be a fully matured tree. That's how long pine trees take. And we think to get to the point where we have genuine rewilding, where nature is taking care of itself, will take a long time because we've had millennia of humans kind of thinking they're in charge, at least if not really being in charge. But it's very fast. So once the trees start to establish, I always say it's like seven years and suddenly the landscape takes off. So I've been looking at trees that we've planted in our estate to dundragon planted seven eight years ago suddenly they're taking off suddenly they're going above the heather and getting away so when nature gets going it really gets going and, and you're not looking
3: for the caledonian forest to, to cover what it once did obviously but in in terms of scale what are you talking about or is it more a focus on the, the different types of trees and and biodiversity
0: so what we're looking at is, is significant recovery, and that very much depends on who owns the land, really. So an organisation like us, Trees for Life, we own a 10,000-acre estate called Dundregan. And of, of that 10,000 acres, we'd like to see as much of it as possible either uh, turning back into natural woodland or... Uh, sustainable, safe peatlands that are holding in the carbon. Those are the two big habitats that we should have. Other landowners, of course, have other interests. So if you want to continue with grouse moors, um, what we want to do is rather more difficult. But even on those sorts of estates, a significant area could be put over to rewilding. You could see lovely natural peatlands recovering and areas of forest recovering as well. So it's about a change in mindset among among, uh, that kind of group of users of the land.
3: And tell us about Dundragon. How how did that come to be the, uh, the, the estate that you're working with?
0: Yeah, it, it used to be um, uh, owned by an Italian uh, uh, wealthy person and he wanted to sell it and contacted Alan, our founder, privately. And coincidentally, this is a very bizarre story. Alan received an email from somebody in America. I've got a million dollars I'd like to give you. And Alan replied, and it was genuine. So wow. we we got uh, away with the sort of million dollar donation, and then over a period of time, Alan and everyone else in Trees for Life raised the one point eight million to purchase it. What is the
3: the the vision for that estate, and how can it show us what's what what possibilities rewilding offers?
0: Although ten thousand acres sounds like a lot of ground, we think that we will only see rewilding happening. At the scale, it needs to happen if about 30% of Scotland's land and sea is being rewilded. That means proactively encouraged for nature to be more in control than humans. So Dundragon can only ever be an example of what can what can be done. So we particularly like to use Dundragon as a place to show that um, here is an estate recovering, here is an estate becoming rewilded. But look, there's still a deer stalker that works here full time. He was here before. There are now seven other people working here because rewilding although it sounds like nature being in control requires a lot of our time to begin with. And here's a place that might hopefully inspire others to do the same sort of thing on their ground. And at the same time, to share the idea that actually rewilded land is beautiful land, it's good for the soul. It's good for the spirit as well. So we see Dundragon as a place where we we, we test out ideas in rewilding. We show people what it looks like and what it can achieve. What what did the
3: deerstalker think when you first told um, him or her the plans? And then
0: uh, what does he or she think now? I have to say, I'll speak on, on his behalf, but our deerstalker was obviously... Um, really lovely very very reticent quiet highlander but very clearly very concerned when we took over because he'd been working in deer stalking all of his life but over the time that he's worked with us which is now nearly 13 years I think he's realized that he still does exactly the same job that he used to do except he's now doing it for the benefit of rewilding as opposed to somebody taking trophies. It's the same work with a different objective. And he's become a really strong advocate of what we do in that community. So he's a real example of somebody that's been on the journey with us and, and changed their attitude to, to what rewilding really means.
3: And how does, different does Dundragon look 13 years later?
0: It still looks very much like you'd expect it to look. So on the lower ground, there's quite a lot of trees. And the higher up you go, there are less and less trees. But if you look more closely, as you go higher up, you see more and more trees peeping above the heather, more and more trees starting to appear. And wildlife is coming back as well. So, for example, black grouse, which are very iconic species of the Scottish Highlands, numbers are increasing at Dundragon, which is quite unusual. And we've even had golden eagles come back and nest after 40 years of being absent from the estate. So it shows that, you know, sometimes they say if you build it, they will come. I think I always say if you rewild it, the wildlife will come.
4: Well, look, let's go on to that. You're convener of the Scottish Rewilding Alliance. Talk to us about your calls for Scotland to become the world's first rewilding nation and some of the barriers to that. Uh,
0: The thing I would say, I'm I'm clearly not from Scotland, as you can tell from my accent, but since I've lived up here, I've realised the actual potential of the country. It has a lot of land. It has a relatively low population. Some areas of Scotland have a, a lower population as some parts of Scandinavia. So, there is a potential here to actually do something special. There's also a potential, if you do rewilding, to actually re-people because some of the population density is so low the the communities aren't sustainable. So what we in the Scottish Rewilding Alliance are saying is if we were to declare Scotland a rewilding nation, and that means we work from every level in society, from from individuals to to communities, way up to government, to make rewilding happen, we could see the transformation of our landscapes and our seascapes so that, Essentially, we see more nature coming back. We, we help to resolve the biodiversity crisis. We contribute to the climate change problem as well. But also, we see a reverse of what we've seen in, in the highlands, which is of depopulation. Instead of people being cleared from the landscape, rewilding will bring, bring people back to the landscape because there'll be more diverse jobs, and that's what, that's what the area lacks.
4: Explain why there will be more diverse jobs and maybe drawing on your experience at Dundragon.
0: As I say, when we took over Dundragon, there was a deer stalker working on the land, and that was the only employee. Now we have seven staff who work on uh, a tree nursery where we grow trees for planting out in the landscape. One of them trains uh, five other trainees in rewilding. Another person has worked on community development. We're also looking to diversify the estate. So we, we, we will be building a rewilding centre there over the next year. And that will create another 15 jobs in essentially hospitality and tourism and, and nature experience. And in the supply chain, we think there's a multiplier of something like 1.5. So those 15 jobs will create another seven plus jobs within the within the area because simply we're, we're creating a hub, we're, to, we're creating a place that people want to come to and want to experience nature. So through rewilding, not only do you get nature back, but you also get an opportunity for, for nature-based jobs. And that's something we see as really important, for the, particularly for the highlands, for the remote rural areas of Scotland.
4: And let me ask you this question finally, Steve, because our listeners often want to know this, is they'll think, well, that sounds like a great
0: idea, but what can I do? Well, I think you can start in your own backyard, and it's very simple to do that, so even if you've only got a window box, you can plant a packet of wild flower seeds and that will attract the pollinators. The thing i do I live on the edge of a forest in Scotland, and the forest in which I live is a forestry plantation. It should be an oakwood, so I planted an oak tree in my garden in the hope that the red squirrels and the jays will take those acorns, put them in the ground, and long after I've gone, the forest will go back to being an oakwood simply because I planted that oak tree. It's a lovely thought. It keeps me It keeps me going in terms of thinking, well, what contribution can I make outside of work? So there's little small things that we can all do. And all of those little small things added together help to make that real difference.
4: Steve Micklewright it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: No problem. Thanks.
4: To talk further about... Uh, rewilding and what we can be doing across the UK. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jan Stannard, who is co-founder and CEO of Heal Rewilding. Jan, thanks so much for joining us.
2: I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me on.
4: What's the story, first of all, behind Heal Rewilding? Maybe you can tell us that and what you're trying to achieve.
2: A few years ago, I became really aware of two things the catastrophic loss of biodiversity of nature in this country and the worsening state of the climate and saw that there was an opportunity to create something that everybody could do together to address these things i've loved nature since i was a child it suffered on my watch And having had a career of 40 years or so in business, I thought I could bring that to a close and do something that was about the world around me and not about me. So I found people to become trustees of this charity, Heal. So Heal's goal is to raise money, buy land and rewild it across England.
4: And tell us how you're raising money to buy the land to rewild.
2: By asking individuals who care about both the state of nature and climate change to support us so the classic way that charities work which is um, donations regular or one-off and also support from businesses so we have about a dozen um, business supporters already we only launched in march 2020 so we're still really new and young But the support we've had in terms of our fundraising has been extraordinary. And most recently, we were offered a really generous loan from Direct Line Group of £3 million, which is to help us to buy our first two sites. So in a year and a half, we've really got that together. So I'm
4: really proud of that. And how much progress has been made on your first site and and what comes next?
2: When we launched, people said, where is it going to be, the first site? And we settled upon um, the eight counties in southern England from Somerset to Kent, inclusive. And now that we have the funding pretty much in place, we have been searching for sites in those counties. So it's eight counties. And we've got a couple of possibilities and we are looking for something at mid-scale, which is about 500 acres, 200 hectares with buildings. So we are talking really about a farm that might might come onto the market. So we've got yeah a couple of possibilities and our goal is 2022, but hopefully it'll be sooner.
4: And can I just ask you, what's the long-term aspiration of Heel Rewilding?
2: We want a site of around 500 acres in every county in England. So I won't live to see that. <laughs> Hopefully, my children will. That would be about 25,000 acres of rewilded land. So it will help contribute to the this thirty percent of land for nature, um, which has been talked about quite a lot. Uh, I don't think we'll do that by twenty thirty because the it's a very big bill for every you know big amount of money for every site. But how
4: much would it? How much would it cost actually? As a matter of interest,
2: well, let's do the mass. It's it's forty eight counties times, let's call it five million. So that's
4: twenty. Can you doesn't, do the seem too, too <laughs> doesn't seem too bad. Doesn't Two, seem too bad. and forty
3: million.
2: Thank you Correct. for doing the maths. I haven't done those maths. Am I right,
3: Jeff? Well, yeah. yeah, I checked on my calculator.
4: <laughs> that doesn't seem excessive.
2: I think someone who has who has been in government and run budgets of that scale would say that. But a lot of people say that what we're doing is really bold. But one of the things that's really interesting is countries run on debt companies run on debt. So why shouldn't Nature Recovery run on debt? As long as you can service the debt, and, and there are ways of repaying it, and we've got a really good business model, then we want to give that a go. And it's ambitious and sometimes really scary to think about. But everybody that's advised us has said, why not try it? There are so many people out there who will lend at levels that are kind. And that's, uh, that's what Direct
4: Line Group have done.
3: And, and what is the business
4: model? That's a very dragons den question, Deloy. No, no, I'm, just, I'm just
3: because we talked about rewilding, but I I hadn't thought about it being able to. Play- I can see you on dragons
4: den.
2: So, if you just have a field and you step away from it, unless you're farming on that field, if you're if you're allowing nature to run that field, you are going to be relying on on um, primarily on government subsidy to do that. But what we have done is look at so a site is in itself a um i'll call it profit and loss but it's a surplus and deficit um activity and we found 18 different revenue streams which you can um get from land and buildings a a lot of those revenue streams are based on um visitors and learning and just people coming together because for us it's, we need to create a quiet haven for nature and half the site will be closed apart from staff, volunteers, um, scientists, and so on. But in the open half of the site, which anyone can come to, we want it to be a place where people can gather not only outdoors, but in together inside and learn, celebrate, exchange ideas share experiences with each other, make new friends, all the things that this is about a community of people that really care. So the business model is um, very, very carefully worked out. um, And we've had people from the city help us to uh, model over a number of years um, and look at how we can uh, build from one site into the second in the north. So hopefully within five years, we'll have two or three sites.
3: And and I guess that um, I was going to ask you, about the way that a lot of the real world we've talked about has focused on Ministry of Defence land or or these big private estates in Scotland. This is a way of making it accessible and an an important issue to to everyone.
2: So we will always own the land, but the way that people can really root themselves into this project is to sponsor a three metre by three metre square so you asked about how people are supporting us. So the charity is supported by t- donations and we have friends of Heal. But in terms of the land itself, for £20, pounds, people can sponsor um, this three me- metre by three metre square. And you might say, why pick that? Because this amazing system called What Three Words exists. Oh, yes. So What Three what three Words is a um, an alternative to latitude and longitude, which is very hard for people to remember. But What Three Words means that every Nine square meter place on Earth has a three word address: cup dot desk dot screen, and that never changes. And so, when we acquire our foundation site, when we buy our foundation site, we will give people their three by three what three words address, and then they can zoom in on the the what three words website and see exactly where that square is.
4: Oh, I'm
3: I'm really lost have you not put, so, uh, so it's it's um any place uh, 9 square meters instead of giving the coordinates you can use this what three words and it will will give you three words to locate it and if you type those three words into a, a website it would um it it would give you exactly that place on a map i'm looking at the website at the moment and so what What are the words? They're they're, each set of words is unique, so they're as unique as the uh, as the coordinates.
4: I mean, I've typed in my own home address, and it's come up with three words. Don't don't say
2: them. Don't say them. No.
4: No. (laughs) God, I mean, this is like I'm. I'm sorry, I don't want to get off the point here, but this is like I'm quite. (laughs) This this is going to be Ed's new
3: obsession. Um, you wait and see now and in terms of our listeners uh, ed was saying before people listen to the podcast and always want to know what they can do how, how can people get involved and support Heals Plan? so obviously donations would be one way uh what, el- what else can people do
2: become a friend of heel so we are too small at the moment to have mem- voting members but we have friends of Heal. that would be a lovely thing for people to to, to look at um, donations we've mentioned Heal three by three which is land fund and we have 200, I didn't mention the volunteers, we were absolutely swamped. I think when, when Hal and I first um, were preparing for launch, we expected about 12 people to, to step up for tasks. And we had 170 people within about three weeks asking to volunteer and people just want to help. So um, we're going to be doing a lot of, let's call it crowd science, where people are helping find out what's in, our, in our, on our site. Um, so becoming a volunteer is is, a, is also a great way to help. And if they go to the contact page, so we have a donate button on our homepage and a contact page, and that, that's where you can ask to become a volunteer.
4: Well, look, Jan Stanard, it's been a massive education and an inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: The last thing I want to say is that what rewilding is about is hope. People have to have hope. And optimism and uh, that's why it's so great so I've really enjoyed talking to you both thank you for your questions and for being kind and positive and that is the only answer to how we fight these fight back against these things is 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 hope and and uh, positive action so thank you very much
4: well you're born to be wild so what do you think born to be wild I'm a real wild child. born to be wild it's your it's your idea it's the episode title First time in 204 episodes or 207. It's not
3: the first time. It's not the first No, but I know it's a sore point with you. I think mine are just a bit highbrow. They you. are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a big fan of rewilding. I mean, on a basic level, I'm very excited about the idea of beavers, wolves, lynx, etc. cetera. Um, but a couple of things that stuck out for me. One was just in that conversation with Jan, where she was talking about how we're so happy to. Have, have countries run on debt and businesses run on debt. Uh, and and just applying that idea to the environment and, and being comfortable with that was, was interesting to me. And then the other thing was, a while ago, when we were in the thick of it with Brexit, we'd get the occasional email challenging us to do a whole episode about reasons to be cheerful about Brexit. And we'd, we'd kind of struggle with it a little bit but it does look like perhaps in terms of rewilding coming out of the common agricultural policy affords us some opportunities you know it'll be be interesting to see what the government does with this environmental land management scheme
4: yeah i tell you what i thought was interesting was the sort of i think in a way if you're not well informed about this maybe and that maybe that includes me you kind of mix up rewilding and nature conservation into one sort of you know thing thinking about the distinction I think is quite interesting and thinking about what does it mean for the land to be self-sustaining because it doesn't sound like it's completely self-sustaining because Steve was saying well there are employment opportunities and so on but I think it also does speak to a sort of sense of you know this idea of the Anthropocene that we're in an era when we as humans are sort of controlling nature
3: yes we did an episode on it didn't we was it a latitude festival
4: yeah i think it might well have been and in a sense it's sort of i suppose it's trying to push back against that isn't it and to sort of enable you know nature to sort of take back over Mm. and i think there's something quite appealing about the sort of transformation that can clearly take place and that steve was attesting to at dundragon i i felt it made me wonder whether we could, because he was talking about glamping, we could glamp together. I'm, I'm up for it. I mean, there's an offer I've never made yeah. to you before, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and we're clear here it's it's glamping, not just regular camping.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a natural glamper or camper, in truth. Or a naturist. Or a, na- well, who knows?
2: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
3: Well, it was uh, it was lovely to come back off our summer break to a bulging inbox, uh, and we, we always welcome more. If you have any thoughts on rewilding, if you've seen it in action, if you've got any ideas, or indeed ideas for things we should talk about on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can do it through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Billy Knowles on the subject of the National Nature Service. He says, hi, Jeff and Ed. I've been enjoying your most recent episode on Reasons to be Welsh and was absolutely delighted to hear Sophie Howe mention the National Nature Service. I've actually been working with Sophie and her team on creating a wider National Nature Service movement across England as well as Wales. Hearing Sophie on the podcast completed the circle, I actually came to the NNS idea through a previous episode of Reasons to be Cheerful, episode 140. Ah! Look, look. 140! Oh, <laughs> uh, he says, in the first summer of the pandemic, I heard Martin Moore on your podcast talk about his idea for a youth environment service. thought it was absolutely fantastic for a whole host of reasons. Since then, we've joined forces and are working with a whole range of amazing individuals and environmental organisations to build a youth-led movement around practical nature-based action we could all do to help address the climate crisis. We believe that a national nature service would give us another Reason to be cheerful <clears throat> about the future, uh, all thanks to your podcast. Well, firstly, we hope you've enjoyed this episode, and um, and and secondly, isn't that just wonderful to hear about an idea being planted in somebody's head by the podcast, and then them uh, going away and doing something about it? We'd love to hear more of that. Absolutely brilliant. This one comes from Louisa
4: Blakey, and the subject is Pledgeball. Suggestion for future show. Hi, love listening to the podcast, and wanted to recommend the wonderful work of Pledgeball. Katie Cross, a Bristol-based mum of three and all-round legend, has built this charity from the ground up and is gaining traction with football clubs to raise awareness about climate change. Perhaps a feature on it would tie in well with a show you're planning.
3: Have a look on the website. Well, I'm doing that now. And what it is, it's a way to encourage millions of people in the football community to make a small, easy change to their lifestyle, to collectively have a big impact on the planet. Fans, players, clubs, grassroots teams, everyone can get involved. It also says, not interested in football, that's cool, you can get involved anyway. Uh, On the website are details of the uh, the, the CO2 pledges uh, in terms of what, what each of these clubs is saving every year. So, yeah, that looks fantastic. What's your sport? I, I, I like the darts, as you know. Does that count? Maybe, the, maybe you get the darts people involved. Yes, pledge dart, pledge board. How about you? What about the swimmers? What could they be doing? Pledge swim. Be nice to have them uh, t- talking about something else other than just the swimming. We quite like talking about the swimming. I've noticed.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: feels such a short reuniting I know and we're now in the outro it's flown by here we are in the outro and I haven't even asked you what you think of the new Abba songs yet they passed me by all of life's great romances yeah it's most of what I thought about in the build up to to yesterday Um, I even set an alarm on my phone to make sure I was there ready to watch the live stream what they like they're like ABBA. I mean, Agneta and Anna Fried's voices sound older, but the songs sound like ABBA, which is uh, which is a, a great thing. Have you heard that they built a theatre in the old Olympic Park, and you're going to be able to go and see ABBA live, an ABBA concert, and they are going to be in the form of holograms.
4: Why don't they just perform?
3: Because they're all in the seventies, and oh, I see. So they'll send out the holograms, and you get to see them as they were in the, their prime. They've worn these motion capture uh, costumes, uh, but then then they've de-aged them using technology. I, I think it's a, you're pulling a face at that. Do you not like the idea? Why can't they
4: just should Wouldn't it they just be carried, better to sort of carry on and perform?
3: But I think their their point is nobody wants to see ABBA as, as right. they are now. You want to have you've got this image of what they look like in their heyday. Because I, I got to thinking, mm. you know, you've been very busy with, with, uh, yeah. with your various roles. Uh, and um, we haven't done a live show in a, in a long time. You should just hologram. We should hologram well, this is what, how, how would you feel about wearing a motion capture suit and having a hologram ad made? You could call it a milligram. <laughs> I don't know. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Well, I'll, uh, I'll ask somebody else to come with me, then. Oh, no, no. I was going to invite you to the, uh, the, the holographic ABBA concert. Oh, is it in Sweden? No, it's, I just said it's in the Olympic Park in oh, London. Oh, sorry, I, I realise you meant the Olympic a, Park built, in London. Yeah, I see. yeah they built it. They built a, a, a custom-built theater. Wow! Do so they perform every night?
4: <laughs> I think so. I mean presumably it's, I it's not it doesn't holograms don't get worn out or fatigued.
3: No, they don't need uh, they don't need time off. Yeah. Uh, they probably I don't know if the holograms will unionize. Mm, good question. Interesting question. Yes. Should we move on to the doodars? Ah, uh, thank yous, yes. I'd like to thank Alistair Driver, Steve Micklewright, and Jan Stannard. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Uh, we salute Emma, who has been overseeing the live recording this week as well. Thank you, Emma. Joel Pierce does all the research and books the guests with backup from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been born to be wild. He's been born to
4: be a wild child. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful.